Live from Studio A. It's Cuba Pete. It's Cuba Pete. No laughing matter. So, Joe, you dragged us out here, so why don't you tell us why you did this to us? <laughs> I was forced into this. <laughs> well, well why, don't, why, don't we, why don't we ask the person who's really responsible? Yes. So, uh, Renee, why don't you explain to us you know, how we, the, we all arrived here in Las Vegas at Roseman University? Yeah, ultimately, it's my fault. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Roseman University, you know, we are a health professions university, not-for-profit, a very unique institution, founded about 20, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And, and, you know, we came here to found this. I am one of the co-founders. We came here to found, found this institution because we really wanted to fundamentally change how health professionals were trained and educated in the United States and make a real difference. And, you know, it's, it's really important to understand that it's very difficult to really make substantive changes in the educational system in universities in existing institutions. It's like trying to turn the Titanic. So being able to start from scratch with a vision in mind and then being able to work toward that vision in a way that's not hampered or encumbered by pre-existing um, hierarchies, uh, organizational structures, preconceived ideas, preconceived notions is really freeing and liberating. And as we have moved along in our development and wanted to start a college of medicine to complement our other health professions programs and really create that the, the ultimate uh, opportunity for this institution to move to the next level, it was with the College of Medicine. And, you know, once we heard Cuba Pete or Joe <laughs> talk about his vision for medical education and knowing our vision for what we wanted to do in educating healthcare professionals, there was just such a match there. It was It's a match made in heaven. And so we said, let's get Cuba Pete here. And you, Joe, you bring with you your team that's going to make this happen. So bring bring to me the dream team. And voila, dream team in front of me. And and that they are. They really are the dream team. I mean, I'm, I'm hum, humbled to be both yours and their colleagues. And I think that what we did was we looked at what was the problem? What were we doing wrong as medical educators? And how do we resolve it to improve the care in this country, decrease the disparities, increase the diversity of medical education, both the educators and the students? And everybody comes here with very different academic backgrounds. And I'm gonna let Lou, well Lou, actually at this table, I'm the only one with one degree. So I'm sort of embarrassed, but anyways, Lou, go ahead. It's a very lucrative degree. Though, so. <laughs> right. It worked out well. Right. We all have, I think our collective degrees. Don't add up to Don't add up to the is. collective wealth that has been generated by your one uh, degree. But hey, you know, if it works for you. <laughs> um, yeah, but I have two kids. Oh, okay. All right, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Um, so uh, I guess um, my goal here or my role here is to integrate the community component of it, right? You know, because at the end of the day, uh, we work on behalf of the community, right? That's, that's at the end of the day who our clients are, who our um, patients are, 
I think sometimes we forget that part, that patients actually come from real lives. Um, they have families and jobs, and they have challenges getting around, and they places to eat, and et cetera. And so uh, that's, that's my role, is to kind of bring some, uh, um, some closeness um, uh, between the people that we're educating and the people that they hopefully will care for. And so if we can do that, then that's success. And I, and I think that's simplifying the complexity of what you do, because the other thing you do, Lou, is actually develop delivery systems. Develop delivery systems from the perspective of the patient, not the perspective of the physician. And I think that that is something that is incredibly unique. Well, yeah, but, but the, the thing there is, is that they're really all it is, 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 is being a broker of all of the other things that people do well, right? So none of what I'm able to do can get done if we don't recruit diverse students, right, who can speak the languages in the areas that we go to. We can't do this if the faculty that Marin has to train do not know how to um, work. I'm just saying, <laughs> don't, don't know how to, to work integrated. with these communities. We, and, and, and if the students aren't competent, if they don't know the actual skills that Karen is trying to teach them, then I, can, I, I could do more harm than good bringing these individuals out to the community. So it, as complex as it is, it's even more complex um, what each one of us are called to do to, to bring it all together. And talking about diversity, the importance of the diversity is that has to be at the very top of the uh, leadership. And uh, with that, I'd like to introduce uh, Cheryl Brewster, whose last of like 27 degrees was at <laughs> her doctorate in education at Columbia, but she's our senior executive dean for diversity, inclusion, and equity, as well as the pipeline, but you're on. Oh, thank you, Joe. You have 20 seconds. <laughs> I get no respect, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've been doing this work for well over 10 years and understanding a lot of what Lou just said, I think is important, but... I have one job, but I have many roles, and I'm integrated throughout the entire College of Medicine, from faculty, staff, students, to policies, to curriculum. So it is exactly what Lou said, ensuring that the workforce is diverse, both at the student level and for future physicians, as well as at faculty level, student level. I mean, it just it's across the board, ensuring that we have diversity equity and inclusion. So you can have diversity, but if you don't have equity and inclusion, it doesn't really matter what you do because then people don't feel like they have a sense of belonging. And that is what I'm here to do, create a sense of belonging for employees and staff here at the College of Medicine. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that extends beyond our own college. It definitely does. Because it's the collaboration we have with the entire university. Yeah. Something that, you know, university... Explain, explain how the university is set up and how that works. Well, you have different colleges. And then actually we're going to be using through the Genesis program the start of the IPE or the interprofessional uh, education. And Dean Greer, what are those colleges? These are the college, uh, started <laughs> off with the College of Pharmacy, <laughs> the uh, School of Nursing with graduate nursing, dentistry with uh, graduate medical education programs, and orthodontics that we have down here and in South Jordan. We also, uh, up in South Jordan, there's also nursing with uh, nurse practitioners. Wow. Wow, Joe took his pinko, wow. pinko biloba today. Wow. Holy wow. <laughs> you know, just because I have white hair does not mean I have lost all my memory. <laughs> just most of it, okay? The, uh, and that's something that's very, very unique in higher education. 
Everybody talks about collaboration, and generally a medical school's collaboration is we have a Saturday clinic with medical students and nursing students, and that's our collaboration. We're talking about collaboration at all the different points. Actually, the importance of this collaboration is, Karen, why don't you talk about how you want to uh, educate the, uh, our, uh, our medical students from a therapeutic perspective because of the School of Pharmacy. And, and Karen is our Senior Executive Dean for uh, uh, Academic and Student Affairs, and the only one of our team that has actually walked across the Alps. <laughs> Slow jog. So, so my, my job here is to oversee the development of the curriculum and, and do as much integration as possible with some of the other health sciences colleges. That's one of the, the things that makes it exciting to be at a health sciences university is that we can do some of these things together. Um, obviously, our first goal is just to produce really excellent physicians, um, but we want to do that in a way that really prepares them for the future so that they understand uh, the social determinants of health that are so important to our patients, um, that they, they develop a, a real comprehensive knowledge of basic sciences that's rooted in therapeutics. We really want to um, have them understand the mechanisms behind uh medications they're prescribing, other things that they're recommending to patients. And then And, and, and by the way, Karen, that, that is a very unique way of educating medical students. So the, the, the plan is to, to use that kind of perspective to really um, anchor that knowledge in a way that, that they'll be able to continue to refer back to during their practice. There's so much changing right now uh, or changing so quickly in medicine that in order to stay uh, on top of things, in order to stay current, like just look at what we have you know, with COVID, for example, right? All new vaccines, new mechanisms. Um, it's really important to have those, those fundamentals so that you can keep adding to your knowledge base. Um, and, and, and to do it in a way that, that really respects the student experience and makes sure that they have a, you know, a great time while they're going through school as well. And what's important as we prepare the future uh, workforce of physicians and other health professionals is the underlining importance that we all feel of both ethics and the ability of these individuals, if they're going to be change makers in the future, to be able to tell a story. And that comes with Dr. Marin Gillis, who is a philosopher and happens to chair the Cambridge Consortium for Bioethics and is one of the most respected uh, bioethicists in actually the world. Thank you very much. Um, I'm also Canadian, so I'm even That's more right. humble than... <laughs> no one is humble that says, oh, wait, I'm humble. Wait, wait, wait. You can't say I'm humble. Wait, wait, How does that work? What, does she come from a country that has universal health? She does. Oh, okay. What pray tell is that? I don't know, but by the way, if you go to Canada, don't ask for Canadian ham. They call it ham. <laughs> Canadian bacon. Well, it's, Canadian bacon. Exactly. Well, it's exciting to come to Vegas um, and be back in the West, and it's exciting to be part of a place that values education. And when we talk about education, we're always thinking of the students, but we never really think about the educators. And something that is, you know, from top down at Roseman is that uh, the faculty themselves have to be prepared to be good educators, and that we are trying to tell the world that if you're a Roseman grad, that you can have a certain guarantee of a certain way that that student's going to be, and it's because the faculty are prepared to teach them. And one of the things that, um, and I wanted to pick up something that was from what Lou was saying, when we're talking about the community and we're looking at where the patients are coming from, in a lot of health profession schools, and I've, 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 I've taught at a bunch of them, 
Um, all, all health professionals care for patients and they want to have patient-centered care, but our perspective is completely different on that. And it's wider because you can respect a patient as a person, you can talk about family-based care, you can talk about the biopsychosocial model, but we're going a step beyond that. Going into and home. we're going into the social determinants of health, which unless you address those, you know, we really can't talk about health at all, right? And we're not uh, setting up our medical students who are graduating to be able to deal with the consequences of that in the world, and that's what they're going to be addressing, right? That's what's on the line for them. So we're preparing them for it with solutions, you know, and because we want our students to be change makers. 100%, because one of the most important things is medicine is going to be going through crucial changes in the next couple of decades. And we see that because of COVID. It's not just the technology, but also the realization of these disparities which we've known. But Which, by the way, it was 1985 when the very first report of minority health ever came out in this country. And it wasn't until the late 80s that it actually got a funding for its appropriation. So the United States is not, it's sort of new at this game, but the reality is the disparities are embarrassing. Right now in America, your zip it's code, it's, it's, it's 100%, your zip code is more important than your genetic code for your morbidity and your mortality, how long you'll live or how you will suffer. And we need to resolve these things. If we're gonna be leaders in this, uh, in this arena, the expression of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what happens at Roseman, we want the world to know. And that's what it's exciting, being able to start from the ground up. Yeah. Like that's one of the reasons when, uh, because I think we all remember, and um, when Joe came up to each of us and said that our lives were about to be <laughs> abruptly changed, and, and we, it, we were kind of in shock. You know, yeah, and, I remember, and I, I I remember talking to you, Marin, about it. I remember <laughs> that, but, and I, I grabbed you in the hallway, and I went, Vegas, Lou? Really? <laughs> and, and what did I say, though? You, I, I remember what you said. You said, when are we going to have another opportunity? When are you, you said to me, when are, are you ever going to have an opportunity to be involved with an enterprise starting from the ground up with starting a medical school? And then you also said to me, and when have you ever failed at anything? And I went, oh, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good butterer. He's a, I mean, it was all over. I went, oh, come on. <laughs> it's true, though. It's, and I, it's I very, very true. a lot because, and I had been in Nevada before, and I love Nevada. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys, it's different. The, the mountains are pretty overwhelming, but every morning when I wake up and I see the mountains. I know, it's spectacular. It's very different. It's very different, but my God, they're glorious. It's inspiring. Yeah. It's inspiring. Now, I I don't hike. That's that's Karen's department. She is like the (laughs) in-house hiker. Neither do I. And she's she's silently on a mission to get all of us to hike. I'm I'm recognizing that more and more each day. I I am on a mission. Yes, yes. I got new boots. I'm ready. Can can you explain your progress in this mission, uh, Karen? Because I'm I'm just curious as to why you are you you're on that quest. Well, so far, not only has Cheryl come hiking, Cheryl has actually taken other people hiking. So I'm, I'm making slow inroads into the team. Okay. She, okay. Sa- she saved my marriage. We've been married 40 years. Yeah, Janice has wanted me to too. go hiking. 
And I said, but you can go with Karen. <laughs> <laughs> and so she yeah, does. Such a rom- and, so, and so a romance began. Yeah, it did, it did. However, I have to have a full meal prepared for them when they get back, okay? <laughs> we work up an appetite, Joe. <laughs> I didn't know there were so many supplies related to hiking, too. Apparently, Joe's been doubling down on supplies as well. Yeah, so- backpacks, hiking poles, boots. Yeah, yeah, I got the poles, the boots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, Renee, you hike too. Oh yes, she does. Her and you know, Harry. Uh, Harry, Harry Rosenberg, the other co-founder of Roseman, was actually not just a hiker, but a mountain climber and a so glacier climber. Climbing like different peaks across the United States, and yeah, so he. Uh, um, I'm blanking on the name of the big peak in Washington State. Karen. Yep, Karen. Big peak in Washington State that he's climbed several times. So yeah, and and he did sabbatical in New Zealand and spent tons of time hiking in the mountains in New Zealand. So he's a big hiker. So he's the one wow. that got me into it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We come we come from Miami, which is Move sea your level. Neck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to get out of sea level. <laughs> That's yeah. right. But it's so inspiring out there. No, it's amazing. And the nice thing is, during COVID, we've been able to get out and do stuff and not be cooped up in a house. So that's been kind of nice because, you know, we came from the beach. So it's, it's a very different environment. So. Well, here they have a lot of beach, just no waterfront. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's been kind of cool to do something different and, and, and allow us to get out and get some fresh air. It, it's been great. My, and my wife, Janice, she really loves it out here. She really, really does. And... Uh, of course, it's always really nice not to have to worry about hurricanes. Yes, very much so. Although that wind last Saturday was crazy. Was 74 miles an hour. It was one mile an hour off of category one. <laughs> the wind was so, so bad, and we didn't realize how bad it was that Janice looks at me and goes, Did you move the outside furniture? <laughs> I said, No. <laughs> so, Renee, what is, the, what is the question you've always wanted to ask us? Um, especially now that we've been here for a little while, <laughs> uh, that you haven't had a chance to ask. Well, you know, you know, with you guys, it's it's like it's interesting to talk with you all because it's like the sky is the limit with you guys. And you know what I appreciate about you all is, and I think you know, as the co-founders, I think we feel some some uh, kindred spiritness with you all. Is you don't you? It seems as if you guys don't put limitations on yourselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, OK, how do we make this happen? And so, you know, um, one of the things that's always inspired me is I, taking this sort of Stephen Covey approach, I call it, to how we're moving forward. And that's begin with the end in mind. That's you know, right. one of the things that, that Steve, Stephen Covey has is seven habits of highly effective people. And it's amazing how much clarity you get from that, right? Because then you can see the end goal and you yep. just figure out how to get there. So how has the journey been for you guys in the past, what has it been, six, seven months that you've been here in thinking about what the end's going to look like and then your journey in planning on how to get to that end vision that you have? Let's talk about Genesis. I, I, I know that for one thing, it is so exciting to be a part of this process. And that's the way we approach it every single morning. We approach it every single morning, and one of the rules we have is even though I'm the dean, they all have to agree to disagree with me constantly. <laughs> so the, uh, We're good at that. They're good at that. But what it is, <laughs> it, it, is you have these four incredibly intellectual, 
ethical, led by social justice, brilliant minds working together from different disciplines to make something work. It was like, you know, Lou figured out how do you take social systems that look at families and medical systems that look at individuals and marry them into one so that we can make these systems work. Nobody thought about doing that. Karen is developing a curriculum that is, in my estimation, is gonna be fantastic, beyond fantastic. A model. A model. <laughs> and, uh, ha and being both academic and student affairs, she can marry both curricular and not curricular things to produce the very best physicians that we can. With Marin, we have somebody here that's gonna be using learning innovations with studio design teaching like the uh, MIT Media Lab, hackathons, uh, the arts, the cultures, to be able to produce a student that's not just the best clinician, but also one that can communicate appropriately to not just their patients, but to the general public as changes occur. But that can only be done if we have the proper pipeline, if we have the proper diversity, if there's somebody there making sure that our hiring processes within the medical school follow all these rules, we need to be the most professional, the fairest, the most ethical, the most compassionate. Even though in medicine we talk about empathy and humility, as Marin was explaining to me the other day, empathy is how you get to compassion. They are two different things. And we, for us, we wanna, we, we really want the world to come here and say, oh, is that how you do it? What do you guys think? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm excited about how close and interwoven the work that typically I do is seen as external, right? It's like, in the past, it's been, oh yeah, you know, Lou does that community stuff. And so, <laughs> you know, it's true, right? I mean, that's what I would always hear. Like, Absolutely. he does that community stuff, right? And so, you know, it's, it's been very, very, very rewarding to be able to sit with, with Karen, um, uh, I probably sat with Karen too long because she then made me like co curriculum. Yeah, curriculum you know, and so and so I, you know, but but the the positive to that is is that you know I'm seeing all these these exciting and, and innovative ways that we can weave the community into um, our day to day lives, um, and they don't have to be sort of tangential to what it is that we're doing they're actually interfaced into it. And, and so the, the work around looking at practice groups and, and how we're mm -hmm. going to have students um, organized in practices that will work with communities. And, interprofessional practices. And, and yes. Interprofessional practices that have pharmacy students, dental students, et cetera, in it. Um, the, the fact that we'll be able to, to um, show uh, the benefit, the growth in a student by their actual ability to perform certain activities in the community is exciting to me. But, but it's, it's, it's a two-way thing, right? Because something that, you know, from the beginning, when we all started to work with Joe, he always said, you know, we are not gonna helicopter with community. Universities and academic centers go in all the time and what they're looking at community for is for like Data. ends. You know, we need subjects to study. And you go in with your grant, you study the people, you write your papers, and then you leave. And the community is going, well, that was nice. Yeah, right? well, meanwhile, and you also took all of the money. And you took all the money, you took everything else. And so to look at the relationship between the university and the community, and from the get-go, we've always, you know, in our minds saying the community are teachers of our students. 
right? They're co-educators in this And you plan to endeavor. make them faculty. And, right. I, and we are developing a faculty line for them called Community Faculty Associates so that they can be developed as Roseman educators. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and they are going to be, because they are part of the teaching program that we have. We couldn't do what we want to do without them as educators. And Karen wants to use some of the, the households as um, opportunities to do assessment on the... Right, the, absolutely. The, Right. Yeah, what I wanted to say is that, you know, what you're describing, you've articulated it very well in, in just a, a small phrase. And it, it's something that I've latched on to. I think Joe was the first one that introduced me to it, it because it's really very powerful. You don't talk about a community-based medical school. You talk about a community-dependent yes. medical school. And there's a huge difference there. Mm -hmm. And I think what it does is it really takes the arrogance out of the university approach to things um, and really says, look, we need you, community. And, and yeah, we hope and we want, uh, you know, our desire is community centric to yeah. improve the community um, as a part of the community. Right. Um, but but we acknowledge that we, we need you. You're part of us. We want to make you part of us. And that community dependency is a very different model from a higher ed ivory tower. It's not ivory tower. It's we're getting down and dirty with you all. And we want to improve your lives. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we know that when yeah. we go in, because we're a university, we go in with baggage. Right. So it's incumbent upon us to build trust. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Karen. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, definitely, um, and trust and relationships, right? Not um, So with, with individual households and families, with community organizations, and with our hospital partners and our mm -hmm. physician partners who will be, you know, key to the training of our medical students in the clinical areas and, and to make them feel like they're also part of the part of the family. Yeah. Um, Lou was mentioning, you know, sometimes things getting sort of siloed or, you know, this happens over here and this happens over here. And we really want to try to avoid that and have the most integrated um, curriculum management possible. The students only see it from their perspective, right? They're going to one medical school. They're not going to this program and this program, and this program, and then somehow having to figure out how to tie it together themselves. So we, we want to make sure that we, um, you know, it, despite having a, a, a very um, distributed sort of learning environment clinically, that we have ways where we can pull that together for the students and, and really prepare them to work in all sorts of different arenas in the future. And, and some of that's gonna be through technology, um, through telehealth, through um, through using all sorts of virtual learning tools that, you know, that are now accessible and really embracing that in, in part of the learning environment. And I want to kind of go back to something that you mentioned, Karen, and that was the issue of trust. And so I, and building with the community. And so I think, and it also ties into what Marin was talking about. You know, this is the first time I've been able to write a grant where the co-PI is a community leader who has mm -hmm. her own community organization and to say, we're writing this together and you get some of the money, I get some of the money, or we, Roseman, get some of the money, but... You know, that that shows that we are sincere in our, you know, mindset that this is about the community. It's not just about Roseman and that we are here, as Joe likes to say, in perpetuity. And we are building 
strategies where we know that these programs are sustainable by building up the community organizations and building infrastructure within some of these really small organizations, I think is important because that's also community building, right? And we're talking about an organization that works with first-gen students to allow them to see how their organization grows based upon resources that they might not have otherwise had access to is not just, a, like I said, it's not just about Roseman, but this is also about the individuals that are impacted as they move through the world to see, oh, this is how it can be done in a more ethical, just way where resources are shared. And but the, you're also and, doing it with the, the other universities. Yes, so it's but not think, just sharing with the organizations. Yeah, but you're, yeah, it's, and, and, and that's, that's just kind of saying, we don't own everything. Right. We're part of everything. Right. When, it's, what, a we. It's, it's a we. It's a we. And which is very different from the history of my profession, which tends to be more I. And so we want to change that characteristic. We want, we, we truly want humble physicians. And one of the ways we do that is by being dependent on the community and sending a student to somebody's household. No longer is that patient coming into the ivory tower, but you're going to somebody's home and you have to show respect and you have to observe. And very different than any other medical school, they will be taking care of these families for three and a half years longitudinally. So they're gonna see exactly what happens to individuals and families and interactions and all that, and, and one of the most important things that uh, Lou had insisted upon at the prior institution we were at when doing this was the student is not allowed to ask, how do you feel? But what is your most urgent need? Oh, I got it right. He got it, he got I, it. You know, you know? <laughs> only 15 we years later breath. I got it, okay? We were holding our breath. He, you guys keep doing it in different languages. <laughs> and well, it's all, hard to develop empathy from books, right? Yeah. Yes. You, you develop empathy when you can see, feel, it, it bring in the environment around you. So you can't do that in a classroom. Getting the, the students into those homes is going to be tremendously impactful and make a huge difference in their development of empathy and then to the next level of compassion. Of which, by the way, one of the requirements to be on faculty at the College of Medicine will be that that faculty member, whether you're a bench researcher or a clinician or purely an educator, has to make house visits. Staff too. So uh, this is something that, that is for, uh, uh, we're fully committed. We're fully in this. You can't write a grant. You can't uh, teach students about being empathetic, about working in communities if you've never been there. And sadly, right. the system we have currently, you have people it who have multi-million dollar grants and have never been to the communities that they are studying, know nothing about the individual. So it's, it's, it's kind of sad that we have to, uh, tout that as as being distinct and unique when it quite honestly should be happening, you know, uh, more broadly. Well, the other thing that's distinct and unique is what you and Marin bring to the table, which is in every single case presentation we're going to have, the student has to be able to predict ethical dilemmas that might occur, or what were the ethical dilemmas that occurred that got the patient to this position, as well as what are the social determinants that might have exacerbated or caused this disorder? And how do these social determinants affect your decision in therapeutic interventions in a patient? How, how does this work? Because these social determinants depend on everything from food inequities to employment to income to housing. And that's why the student asks, what is your most urgent need? Because they need to realize that it's not 
getting your colonoscopy done. It might be paying your rent. Right. It's not, you know, it, 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 it's not about my annual checkup, but I got to make sure my kids get to school. I, you know, I'm working three jobs. I have no benefits. So every day I take off work to go see a doctor. Guess what? I lose 20% right then and there, not even including what I have to pay. Right. Oh, I got to do daycare too. So, I mean, the, the realities that exist out there have to be seen in its totality for a student, not encapsulated in this is the disease, here is the treatment. There's a lot of variables. We have, you know, evidence-based protocols, which have variances in them that you could do when you do these different things. So, you know. Well, one so of the things is when, we were, when you're speaking about this is that there's a lot of literature about the experience of medical students. Once they come into medical school and the reasons why they want to come into a health profession, and it's, I mean, it really is to help people. And that something happens by the time they hit their third year where there's something called empathy erosion. And of the things when they study this, like, and what, why it is, is because most medical students and health profession students learn on the bodies of the poor, you know? And so they have folks coming into, a, let's say, a hospital setting, and they know that when they're putting them out there, but putting them back, they're just going to come back in. And it's very disheartening because the students go, what can I do? And you see that subsequently when they become physicians, because one of the things is when you apply to medical school, you say you want to take care of everybody. I want to help. Right. I want to help. You do a white coat ceremony. You take, take a pledge. You take an oath to, to do what you're going to do. Two-thirds of your educational dollars are paid for by the public dole, which means that the public is paying for it. When you learn to do a procedure, you're learning to do that procedure most likely on an uninsured indigent patient in the hospital. When you graduate, you take another oath. And where along all this place, those that trained us to be physicians, do we go out and say, oh, you have no insurance, I'm not going to see you? Or we'll set up this little clinic for you here. So I, I, I look at that as, you know, wow, we use people to train to be where we are. And then we ignore them. And we them. forget them. After we make money. And we make money. Well, we make lots of money. And it, but it has to be more than just making money. We're going to make a good living anyways. But we need to be leaders in society. We need to have to change policies. We need to say this is what needs to happen. And, right. you know... The, uh, you know, the old thing of, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to be like England or Canada. Well, every time I've gone to England and Canada, everybody boasts about their, their health system. I mean, for goodness sakes, during the Olympics in, in uh, England, the opening ceremonies was about the national health system. That's not the most exciting topic, but, but they made it into a, a great dance, including using hospital beds. I don't know how they did it. I mean, I didn't even know the Brits could dance, okay? <laughs> so, so, Renee... Um, close us out. Tell us what is the, uh, if we were to close our eyes or close your eyes and see uh, the College of Medicine in five, ten years, what, what are you ambitioning to see? Well, what I'm envisioning is that uh, when there is conversation about the top-notch medical school in the United States, you don't hear Stanford, you don't hear Harvard, you don't hear Yale, you don't hear Johns Hopkins, you hear Roseman, and you hear Stanford wants to be like Roseman, <laughs> Harvard wants to be like Roseman, Yale wants to be like Roseman, and, and you know we're just on the top of everybody's lips as the best institution, producing the best physicians, doing good in our communities, 
um, and and really truly making a difference. So that's what I see, and and it's up to you guys. I'm watching. <laughs> okay. We accept the challenge. We gotta okay. get back to work, guys. Yes. <laughs> We're on the clock. We're on the clock. And that means about seven more cups of espresso. <laughs> Renee, thank you so much for for hosting this with us. We and not only that, but thank you so much for allowing us this opportunity to be part of the Roseman family. This is Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter, and uh, even when you're dealing with serious subjects like improving people's lives and producing the future workforce, there's always room for a little smile and a little laughter. Thank you. When I play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. 